UpperCervicalDocs.com. For more upper cervical interviews and to hear upper cervical testimonials, please go to UpperCervicalDocs.com, where you can also learn how you can have your own audio program to promote your clinic and promote your practice. Uh, again, that's at UpperCervicalDocs.com. This is Upper Cervical Interviews. I'm Dr. Paul Hambrick. Typically, when I do an interview with an upper cervical doctor, uh, it's just a uh, straight question and answer, human interest type of thing. But for this interview, I wanted to do something a little different. You see, I have this client. My name is uh, Gary Golombiewski. His name is Dr. Gary Golombiewski. And uh, I am a chiropractor. I graduated Palmer College of Chiropractic in 1982. And uh, I was a second-generation chiropractor. I was born into chiropractic. My dad, who was a meteorologist in World War II, had a science background and had an uncle in Chicago who went to Palmer in the 30s. And uh, my dad became very uh, interested in chiropractic and became a chiropractor. And he graduated Palmer College of, uh, well, actually it was Palmer School of Chiropractic in 1951. And that was the year I was born. And um, he uh, was selected to work in the B.J. Palmer Private Clinic, and he stayed there for two years. And I was having a conversation with him one day, and he mentioned that he was giving a slide presentation to local organizations about the Palmer Clinic. And it included lots of pictures of the Palmer Clinic. And he ended it with a recording that he had uh, digitally remastered of B.J. Palmer giving a health talk. Now, when you come here, as you know, you, you get an adjustment. Well, I thought that was very interesting because I had never heard B.J. give a health talk. In fact, I had never heard a recording of B.J., um, which seemed kind of odd to me considering uh, how advanced he was um, technologically. The minute any new technology came out, it always seemed like B.J. Palmer was the first one to jump on it, and so it was kind of surprising that I'd never heard a recording of him, much less health talk. So I asked him if he wanted to do an interview with me, and I thought he could go through the slide presentation on the history of the Palmer Clinic, and somehow we would incorporate the B.J. health talk into the interview. I figured what uh, uh, what better health talk to hear than the one that was given by the developer of chiropractic himself. I figured he would be real feisty. If you get up off of the adjustment table and you go in the dressing room and you begin squirming around and twisting yourself and twisting your head, well, I never felt so good in my life. Just look at this. That gun you, you throw it right out again. Well, I wasn't disappointed. B.J. was exactly the character I imagined him to be. Not necessary for you to tell us whether you're getting better or not. We can tell you. B.J. was, if nothing else, a true believer in chiropractic and very, very bold. Well, I remember one case that came in. 
a couple of years ago, it was a case of diabetes that had been heavily on insulin. The case was in a coma, was rushed from his hometown in an ambulance and rushed in here, and he was in a dead coma when he arrived. We had a physician on our staff then, not Dr. Graves that's here now, but we had a physician on our staff then, and he looked at the case and he said, B.J., I've got to give this man a shot of insulin right away. Got to get him out of this coma. And I said, no, we'll get no coma, no insulin. Well, he'll die. Well, if he's got to die, he might as well die trying to get well, trying to live. No, we'll uh, take him in and spinograph him and give him an adjustment. We did that. He was still in the coma when we took the spinographs and when we gave him the adjustment, he didn't know what was going on. And he was in that coma for 72 hours. But he came out. Today is alive. Hale and hearty. We cut off the insulin. And the one thing that struck me most about BJ, and I knew this from school and from the upper cervical evolution seminars, the one thing that really stuck out about BJ, both in Dr. Golombuski's talk and in the BJ health talk, was just how upper cervically oriented BJ Palmer was. the entire health talk, BJ talks about the subluxation, singular, and the vertebra, singular, and how the patient may hold for weeks, months, or years uh, this single adjustment. All very upper cervical type language through the entire health talk. When you sleep at night, never sleep on your little tummies. Never. No matter what comes or goes, don't sleep on your tummies. And I'll tell you why. I'll give you the reason. When you sleep on your tummy, you've got to turn your head this way in order to breathe on the pillow. This side of your neck is thoroughly relaxed. This side of your neck is all taut and tight. Those muscles are pulling all night. That's bad. In the morning, you probably have pulled this out. Here's Dr. Golombuski's story. So, uh, I was uh, very lucky to be born uh, in a family where I had upper cervical specific chiropractic. Um, my brother and I never had a vaccination. Uh, we grew up in the, in the era of polio. We grew up in Jersey City, uh, New Jersey, and that's a very big city, and, uh, uh, polio was all, all around us, and we never got it. And um, a lot of childhood diseases in the 50s and in the 60s. That uh, anything that we got, like measles, uh, my brother and I, we had very small cases of it compared to 
our cousins and people that we live very close to uh, in an apartment building. Um, and uh, they were all vaccinated and they were all on all kinds of medication. And uh, it was just the power of the body working well when uh, there's no nerve interference. But anyway, what, <clears throat> growing up in Jersey City, my dad had his, um, the office was in the front part of the house, and we had a two-bedroom apartment in the back. And uh, during his lunch hour, I would run out to the, uh, to the waiting room and, and run around, and he'd play with me for a while. And in his large waiting room, there were two pictures up on the wall, one of D.D. Palmer and one of B.J. Palmer. Both of them had long beards. Well, D.D. had the long beard and long hair, and B.J. had a beer, beard with uh, long hair. They were the scariest-looking guys I ever have seen. Now, mind you that, in the 50s, everybody had a crew cut and no facial hair. Mm. So one day I said to my father, I looked up, and I was afraid to look at these pictures because they were scary-looking. For a five-year-old, and I said to my dad, I said, "Who are those guys?" <laughs> dad said to me, "He says the man on the left is D.D. Palmer. He founded chiropractic in 1895, and he told me the story about Harvey Lillard and and D.D. Um, giving him the adjustment, and his hearing was restored. And he says his son is to the right. That's B.J. Palmer. He developed chiropractic." So I asked my dad who was smarter, and my dad paused for a while, and he said they were both very smart men. And B.J. Palmer probably was a little smarter, and I'll tell you why. He took the bull by the horns, and he developed the philosophy and the art of chiropractic. And uh, so based upon that, uh, I was a pretty much educated in in upper cervical chiropractic uh, as far as I was uh, as young as I was five years old my dad would throw out terms like medulla oblongata and tell me what it was when I was five <laughs> and um, so um, I, uh, I was very lucky to be born into a chiropractic family especially one who worked with the master BJ Palmer who gave us so much and uh, the, uh, I would have to say that uh, the, the diseases that were rampant during the 50s and the 60s in, in childhood, like polio, for instance, uh, um, there were a lot of uh, people around us in a big city that were, were coming down with polio and other diseases uh, uh, that were pretty devastating. And... Uh, my brother and I, who were never vaccinated, were just under upper cervical chiropractic care. Uh, we had very few of the childhood diseases, and the ones that we did have were very mild. And uh, cousins were living very close by. We were always with them, and they were vaccinated, and uh, they were taking all kinds of medications and stuff, and they were filled with measles and mumps and uh, whooping cough, etc. And um, my brother and I, you know, uh, we come from a very similar genetic pool, if they were our cousins, living and, and 
and at times even sleeping in the same beds and eating at the same table. And uh, we uh, were able to, f to fight off a lot of those diseases because our immune system was working as best as it possibly could. So uh, later on, uh, you know, I um, got my undergraduate degree from the University of Cincinnati in the biological sciences and uh, liberal arts and uh, then became a chiropractor and went to Palmer College of Chiropractic. Dad was a, uh, for the first two years of his practice, he told me that he was a specific upper cervical chiropractor, um, meaning that they're trained by B.J. Palmer and the B.J. Palmer uh, private clinic, and uh, um, they did toggle recoil only when... Uh, the NCM, the neurocalometer, showed that there was a pattern. So they had they used pattern analysis back then, and um, he would adjust only then. And he wouldn't adjust us very often. Uh, in fact, when I go through the slides here with the BJ Palmer Private Clinic, the average adjustment was one in 28 days. Huh. Now, I, I kind of find that phenomenal, considering what we see today mm -hmm. and the results that B.J. Palmer in his private clinic, the results that they got. Mm. And they only adjusted one bone in 28 days, mm. and then they left innate intelligence to do its thing. I find that absolutely amazing. I think there is a lesson to be learned by not only... Uh, the public, but obviously the chiropractors. They, they have to know our history, and they have to know what this man did. Because in my opinion, if it wasn't for B.J. Palmer, uh, we wouldn't be here today as we are. There's no question in my mind. So he said, you know, I think I'm getting worse. I said, why? Well, I, since I've had this adjustment, I, I'm just suffering all kinds of pain. I said, gee, I'm glad of it. I'm glad of it. I hope you get a lot more. But he said, I can't sleep. I'm glad of that. I'm glad you got so much pain you can't sleep. But he said, I can't tolerate it. I got to sleep. I said, you'll sleep. When innate wants to put you to sleep, she'll put you to sleep. Now you leave it up to innate. And, and I feel that um, not, only, not only develop the philosophy, but the philosophy gives us the framework for science and gives us the framework for art. And he did it all. He did full spine adjusting, but how he ended up in the upper cervical spine, who knows? I mean, even when I spoke to Roy Sweat about this, he, he said, well, I don't know how he ended up in the upper cervical spine, but if it was by chance or if he just figured that that's where you had to be and you had to be as specific as you possibly could be, mm. um, it was just a wonder to even Roy Sweat 
and uh, a wonder to my dad and and others. Um, I remember when I was in philosophy class at Palmer College, uh, Virgil Strang was our philosophy professor, and um, I asked him about uh, the B.J. Palmer private clinic, and he eloquently coined that part of history, the golden era of chiropractic. Hmm. And he went on to talk about it uh, for days to to our philosophy class. And uh, it was uh, amazing. And I remember him saying one time, uh, he said, um, uh, Thompson was on a faculty. And uh, he was teaching some of the faculty members full spine adjusting. And then it got back to BJ. And he pulled the Virgil over, and he says, you're a teacher here. He says, I heard that you were, you know, doing some full spine adjusting there with, with uh, Dr. Thompson. And he says, yes. He says, you have to decease from doing that, because this is an upper cervical institution. If you want to do that, you're going to have to go someplace else, he said. Wow. So there was no, there was, uh, he was, BJ was very strict on, um, on the philosophy, science, and art, and it was his institution. And uh, you either love them or you hate them, they said. Yeah. Um, so I uh, graduated from Cincinnati in 1974. After I graduated uh, Palmer, they asked me, uh, New York Chiropractic College asked me to uh, teach upper cervical HIO because uh, they found out about, you know, they knew my dad and. Uh, being in the New York metropolitan area, and they knew they knew that I, I know I took upper cervical graduate courses like Grostic with John Jr. and uh, Pettibon at the time, and and Atlas Orthogonal with Roy Sweat. So they they kind of recruited me to be uh, an instructor there, and so that I did that for a while uh, on my off days, and I taught um, HIO. With, along with instrumentation, which was the NCM hmm. and pattern analysis, so I did that from uh, actually I did that from eighty four to eighty eight. Okay. How did you get exposed to uh, instrument adjusting? Ah, that, that's a good question. I got exposed to instrument adjustment. And I, you know, I got to tell you the question I asked my dad about that, too. Um, I got exposed. One of my roommates at Palmer, uh, who graduated Palmer, uh, his dad graduated Palmer a year after my dad in 52, uh, knew Burl Pettibon very well and uh, was using his instrument. It was, and I took the Pettibon procedure there at Palmer College Chiropractic, and um, uh, he told me about Roy Sweat. And uh, so I started to investigate that, and he says, you know, he was, he was so excited about Roy and Alice with diagonality, he says, you you, you, you got to check this out. He says he's making a big breakthrough into upper cervical chiropractic. And so I did, and um, I founded a um, chiropractic up here in New Jersey who uh, was in uh, Roy's first class and uh, went to get adjusted. And it was like, oh, my God, I'm really clear. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I was 
I was clear before, but uh, I really felt very, very clear neurologically. And um, so then I started to uh, to go through that program, and then I became board certified with Roy. And I used to love going down to Atlanta because uh, when I was taking the board certification, I would get up extra early in the morning to get to his clinic just to talk to him. <laughs> and we would talk. And... Uh, it was a great experience. I mean, any time you get an opportunity to, to talk to a master, uh, you, you, you got to you got to seize the uh, the moment. Yeah, no question about it. Because uh, there are very very few of them left in that era. Because Roy graduated Palmer in '48. Yeah, and. Um, and, uh, um, you know, he he was an agrostic instructor for the longest time. And um, I remember when I was taking agrostic at Palmer College Chiropractic, John Jr. told a story about the, the agrostic procedure and, and, and BJ. And, and John Grostick Sr.'s dad would have to go to Davenport to get an adjustment because BJ was the only one who was able to clear him. Hmm. Now, in my opinion... BJ was able to pick up an X-ray, look at, look at, look at it, uh, right up into the into the light, without even put it in, putting it on a view box and drawing any lines and know exactly how to adjust the patient. Hmm. In my opinion, and we'll go over this in the presentation soon. He studied so many bones. He he knew exactly what line of drive to do based upon any anomaly that he may see, any condyle that may be steeper than the other, or what kind of angle it needed to to be corrected. And so John Sr. said to him, B.J., he says, I can put this in, in mathematical terms for you. And B.J. looked at him, John Jr. said, and he, he says, go ahead, go do it, and then get, bring it back here. And he did. And then uh, the, the, there was a standardized committee that started around 1939 at Palmer School of Chiropractic. And Lyle Sherman was uh, one of the leaders of the, this committee. And they presented it to, to, to Lyle Sherman. And Lyle Sherman and the committee and BJ gave uh, John Grostick Sr. the okay to make the presentations on a graduate level through Palmer School of Chiropractic. And that's the way um, the Grostick procedure started off. Hmm. So he just innately was able to adapt because of his knowledge of bones, like you said. He just looked at so many, he knew exactly what to do. He didn't necessarily need a mathematical formula. He didn't need the mathematical formula. He just knew his line of drive based upon the x-ray. And, in fact, when we go over... (laughs) This man was so ahead of his time. It's unbelievable. I mean, he, he developed, I believe he developed the first L-frame uh, hmm. for the x-ray analysis. Huh. And, uh, you know, the cervical chairs on ball bearings with head clamps, he had that all down already. Huh. So, um I just want to start getting into this now. At this point, Dr. Golombiewski takes us through the slide presentation. 
and uh, you can see that at uppercervicaldocs.com. Born in 1845 and passed in 1913. Um, now, this was the picture that was on my father's waiting room wall. Uh. <laughs> he was a scary-looking guy. Uh, but he gave us so much. You know, he, he gave us a great gift to, to humanity. He was a great American, a great man, and uh, it's um, something to be treasured here. Hmm. Um I remember it was about seven, eight, it was seven years ago. I got a referral from California from a therapist. A lady was deaf for 20 years, and um, she lived in New Jersey. And she was uh, her son was a therapist, but he was in California doing a seminar with this other therapist, and they, he mentioned to the therapist in California about the mother being deaf and the therapist in California said, you got to go to an upper cervical chiropractor. If there's any chance of the hearing being re re returned, you got to go to an upper cervical chiropractor. So anyway, they found me. They live in central Jersey. I live in northern New Jersey. She came in on a Friday. I examined her and uh, took x-rays, did my analysis, and then I adjusted her with the atlas orthogonal instrument. And um, she had hearing aids in. She was 80% hearing loss in the right and left ear. Um, on Saturday morning, she was downstairs doing work, and her husband called her. She came up the steps, and uh, her husband said to her, how did you hear me? And she said, well, I heard you. I came up, and what do you want? And he said, you don't have your hearing aids in. She goes, oh, my God. It must have been that Atlas adjustment. Huh. So uh, she came in Monday <clears throat> with the biggest smile. Now, she's about like 63 years old, right? She came in Monday with the biggest smile on her face. Her son was with her, who was the therapist, and he's smiling. And this little old lady comes up to me and gives me the biggest hug and mm. says, I can hear. I felt like D.D. Palmer at that point. <laughs> and I, I, I said to her, are you sure? Just like D.D. would say, right? Are you sure you can hear it? And she goes, yes, I can hear it. I don't need these anymore. Oh, wow. And I said, uh, so I said to her, well, you go back to the medical doctor and get tested again. So she, she goes back and she gets tested. And she went from 80 to only about a 25% deficit in both ears. And he, and he says, what happened? And she said, I went to this upper cervical doctor, and he adjusted my atlas, and I can hear now. And he goes, I don't want to hear that. Uh. And um, so, um, but she was and retested, and she regained her hearing. And uh, so the, that's my story about D.D. Palmer. Hmm. Because he, he had his first patient, Harvey Lillard, Lillard, was deaf, too. Anyway, we go on here to B.J. Palmer. And he was born in eight, uh, August eight, uh, August 14, 1982, and passed in 52761. He was 78 years old. A man uh, did so much in one lifetime. It's unbelievable. 
I think, in my opinion, he's done more for chiropractic than any man has ever done. Hmm. Any chiropractor who's ever done chiropractic. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be another B.J. Palmer. Maybe one day there will be. But to date, I don't think uh, we have one. We have a lot of great chiropractors in our, in our profession, but none, in my opinion, as great as B.J. Palmer. Now we have here the B.J. Palmer private clinic staff, and this was taken in 1946. I circled B.J.'s picture. Everybody know who B.J. is. To the right of B.J. Palmer is Lyle Sherman. I know him. Mm-hmm. And to the left is Kenneth Cronk. He was head of uh, the laboratory. He had a master's degree in science and chemistry. So I remember when when, uh, when I was at Palmer and he taught biochemistry, he um, he always told the story, and the upperclassman says, well, Dr. Cronk's going to tell the story that when B.J. gave him $25,000 and told him to go out and buy this new chemistry lab, and he was so proud that he was able to get the latest things, because B.J. always wanted the latest equipment. Yeah. And if they didn't have it, if they didn't have it, he was going to invent it. <laughs> and he, he and I'll show you some of the things here that he invented. Um, and this here is the BJ Pro, uh, Private Clinic building on the campus, and this was obviously known as in, in our history as the golden era of chiropractic. That was the the window on on uh, looking at from Brady Street, looking into the window. He had ambulances that would pick up patients from the train station and um, that's an old car that we see here and I think it was a late 40s car it looked like a tank <laughs> uh, but it had cot it had cots in there if they, if they couldn't walk and uh, had to all kinds of things uh, for people that, that uh, couldn't walk and, and had problems maneuvering this is the main entrance here of the clinic Rooms at the entrance. Uh, this is one of the rooms of the entrance. My dad used to tell me when he was in school, there would uh, he would see the light on in BJ's one of his offices in his residence, and uh, he'd be typing away. And when he typed on on the typewriter, he w- wouldn't have just one page. He would have a continuous roll. The role would just keep on going. And he always used to tell students that his most creative time was uh, like at uh, 2, 30, 3 o'clock in the morning. He would get up. He'd go to bed early, and then he'd get up, and then he would write. This is one of the uh, several offices to manage BJ's Enterprises. Uh, uh, he was president of the National Broadcasting Company, uh, west of the Mississippi. Uh, there's a painting here on silk on the right. A, a 17th century museum piece. Mm-hmm. We can see that right there. He collected so many artworks from the East uh, because I, I think the Eastern philosophy and chiropractic philosophy are very, very similar. This is another of BJ's private offices. 
uh, president's office here. On the desk is a, a dwarfed pine. This is very interesting. Uh, to the right, you see the desk on the right here, uh, and then the, there's a light there, and mm -hmm. there's a tree right there. This dwarfed pine is called a Ming tree. Mm -hmm. It's over 200. It's over 200 years old, and mm. it lives and grows without water. Now, huh. leave it up to BJ to find something that innate doesn't need water. <laughs> <laughs> Right, that's crazy. And the, the paintings on silk on the wall are 17th century Chinese paintings. Uh, they are museum pieces uh, from the emperor and empress of uh, Daowager. This is a, a physical examination room. Now, in BJ Palmer's private clinic, uh, there were MDs on staff. They would perform the medical case history and perform physical examination and render a medical diagnosis. Uh, blood and urine analysis were performed, and then they referred the, the chiropractor for analysis and adjustment to the upper cervical spine only. Uh, they also did cardiograms and, and things that were, were popular in medicine at the time. And this is an NCM reading and adjusting room. Now notice that we got here uh, a knee chest and a side posture adjusting table a resting chair. In the early 40s, BJ went over to the side posture adjusting table. This is a, a shielded and grounded NCM reading booth. Uh, it's, it was lead lined to keep out any waves of the electromagnetic spectrum. When, when BJ set out to prove the subluxation, uh, he went all out. I mean, to to let to think about lead lining something so no waves can get in, mm. <clears throat> that's going the extra yard. There's no question about it. Yeah. This is a, a neurocalometer and neurocalograph. A pattern analysis was used to determine when to adjust. The average number of adjustments in 28 days was one. Like I said before, that's pretty remarkable. Here we see B.J. Palmer giving an adjustment. It was an HIO toggle recoil on a knee chest tail. How much time typically did he spend in the clinic day to day? Um, he spent, I don't, you know, I, 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 from what I, my dad told me, he would spend, a, it depends upon the situation, uh, I know he used to uh, give the health orientation class to uh, the, the patients in, in the clinic. And uh, he would say, you know, you can talk about your signs and your symptoms. I'll give you five minutes, he used to say. But uh, if you want to talk at length, you can talk to my, uh, my staff. They're a little bit more, uh, I don't know how he put it, but he They'll listen to you a little longer than I will about your signs and your symptoms. I know why you came here, he says, and I'm going to fix you. Uh, but um, as far as I know, he spent time doing a lot of research. Don't hesitate at any time to... Uh bump into me if you want to, but I'll tell you frankly, I don't give 
very long consultations. You, you can have a consultation with me if you want. But let me warn you in advance, the minute you begin talking about that big toe don't work a wiggle, I'll cut you quick. Now I said, now wait a minute. Let's talk about this horrible subluxation up here, the cough. And I usually will cut you down to about five minutes. Because in five minutes, I can say the thing that I want that counts for you, and nothing you can say to me about your condition helps me one bit. Um, I don't know if he spent much time with the patients. Uh, there were staff doctors that would do the adjustments. The students that were there were doing other things. That I don't believe they were allowed to adjust. Uh, the doctors, the young doctors that were in there, unless they stayed on for a longer time. But I, I don't think VJ stayed there with the patients, but he, he was there. He was there doing things. Now, this is a um, precision spinograph x-ray equipment. I believe that this was the first cell frame for alignment. We can see, you can see where the bucky is and how everything is aligned with, with squares, et cetera. This is interesting here, the x-ray position in seat. I saw this, well, um, I saw one in Palmer in the basement. My roommate was a janitor at night and he used to bring me down there and we used to see things like this. That's, this is a cervical chair on ball bearings for yeah. easy movement of the patient. I saw another one at Ron Aragona's clinic up in New Hampshire. Um, when I was become, when I was studying board certification for applied spinal biomechanical engineering, he had uh, one of BJ's chairs. He was trying to sell it, and I think it was a good deal too. It was five hundred dollars, but it was big and cumbersome compared to some of the you know the chairs that we see today in an upper cervical office. Mm -hmm. And um, we see some precise patient positioning that BJ did in in his uh, clinic head clamps to stabilize the patient once he or she was positioned in a neutral position. They got arm clamps and neck clamps and yeah, the, uh, they put a cork in the, you see that there's a cork in the patient's mouth too. Yeah. This was this, this, this was an open mouth view and the Bucky's tilted to the position of the head and, and the, on the upper shoulders here too. My dad used to use a cork when it, when it was, he said when it was necessary, when people couldn't keep their mouth open. So this is some of the state of the art at the time, their x-ray equipment. And this is an x-ray dark room for viewing. This next one here is very, very interesting. This is a Kuhn protractoscope. The Kuhn protractoscope, by its use, Mathematical measurements are used in comparing change positions of vertebral subluxations before and after adjustment. All directions and angles are possible. I have never seen anything like this before. <laughs> and I, all I know about it is what, just what I said. <laughs> yeah. I've never I seen mean, one before either. 
BJ used uh, fluoroscopy in his clinic. Uh, this is a technician wearing uh, leaded glasses and heavy leaded apron, uh, leaded, leaded gloves for his protection against long exposures. This is a typical x-ray reading room, full spine and upper cervical, specific x-ray view boxes here. This is one of BJ's consultation offices. Um, clinic professionals work and uh, conferences are here. Uh, current case files are here. A large vault contains uh, thousands of old case files. Every case file was crossed card index for instant reference. Hmm. Uh, the case librarian can refer to any case or any history of a case almost instantly. Uh, it's frequently uh, referred to by chiropractors who referred or referring their cases here for research. So he had a pretty, he had a pretty well figured out. If he had a computer, forget about it. I mean, he was... Yeah on top of everything. This is a after adjusting or resting room. There are 37 in the clinic, ambulance, cot restroom. Um, the ambulance cot restroom had no rest bed because the ambulance had uh, cot substitutes. But um, I remember oh, when I was a senior I in extern, I guess we called it, with uh, E.L. Crowder. He was B.J. Palmer's uh, chiropractor, and um, Dr. Crowder had uh, a lot of resting rooms in his office. Uh, these kind of cots and, and, and beds, reclining chairs after the upper cervical specific adjustment, uh, the students would accommodate the patient to rest for 45, 15 minutes, as long as they possibly could. That was, uh, as BJ used to say, I'm setting the atlas like an, a doctor's going to set a bone. I want you to rest now. I want mm. it to stay in place after I put it there. Uh, this is a chemical laboratory. Uh, like I said in the beginning, Ken, Kenneth Kronk, uh, DCMS, was the director. This is one of the hallways. And there was a metabolism test laboratory, audiocardiograph. That's interesting. But this was also shielded and grounded laboratory. They had the audiocardiograph, the electrocardiograph, and the electrocardiophone. Now, I don't know what that all really meant or did because that was the, the, the medical science for the time in the 40s. But these are, uh, are things that uh, the medical doctors more than likely performed on the patient and probably pre-post examinations after the adjustment. Hmm. Uh, this is a shielded and grounded recorded heartometer laboratory. The animal laboratory here uh, it's here where they did the Asham Zonic pregnancy test. Because I remember um, BJ um, wanting to do, uh, you know, the test there too before 
that one of the females came in, obviously he wanted to know if they were pregnant. He was probably concerned about x-ray too, not x-raying the pregnant women. That's only my conjecture. I don't know for sure. Huh. Uh, this is a microscopic laboratory. Now, this is interesting. I don't know why I had this, but um, all anatomical slides are made are recorded in the cabinet on the left. In here is the finest equipment to be had. It may have been for the medical doctors more so than anything else. This is very interesting, a contour graphometer. This slide here shows a postural analysis. This instrument was conceived, developed, and patented by the Palmer School of Chiropractic. Its purpose is to automatically and mechanically record the contours of curves of the spinal column, normal and abnormal. A delicate finger travels the contours of the spine and automatically shifts the recording ink pen on a moving graph paper. It records the A to P curves as well as the lateral curves. This record is made each week, thus we compare one week improvement with the other. Hmm. This is a photographic studio. This is a comparative spinographic color graph laboratory pre-post x-rays was shown here. This is a biological chemi chemical laboratory. Dr. Kronk was ahead of that. This is a blood test laboratory. All patients receive pre-post tests, blood and urine. BJ did all this just to prove the subluxation. This is a chemical research laboratory. I thought this was interesting. Um, <clears throat> 128 separate forms are used to record all the information gathered during the patient's stay at the BJ clinic. That's a lot of forms to fill out. That's you a think book. we got paperwork now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a oh, book. That's a book on a patient. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Now, this is one of my favorite. I got a very nice opportunity to see this in the basement there. Well, a lot of these cabinets were in the library at Palmer College when I was there, too. The Osteological Laboratory, that's one of the fi finest specimen collections in the world, and Palmer will never sell it. Uh, it's one of the jewels of chiropractic. Uh, it's one of the most extensive in the world. Now, when I when I studied with Ron Aragona up in, in, um, in New Hampshire, uh, he had a very extensive osteological uh, laboratory. And in fact, I have about uh, 25 atlases and axes and uh, occipital shells in my office that I got from Ron Aragona. Uh, he, he's another one who had uh, extensive laboratory. I think it was either Stanford University or University of California. I think it was University of California asked him to sell, and he started to sell some of them to the university. There were over 19,000 human bone specimens uh, in the B.J. Palmer private clinic. You see here these full spine skeletons with the cranium. 
There are more here. I remember seeing this scene in Palmer College of the ones that had the severe deformities. More bones. <laughs> he even had skeletons of animals in his collection. And I call this one Skulls of Plenty. <laughs> B.J. Palmer studied extensively real bones. Um, he was particularly interested in the shapes of the occipital condyles and the foramen magnum and the asymmetry. This specimen here, the, the specific subluxation, wet specimen, uh, was on display when I was in the chiropractic college. It was in the library. And um, this is a skull, atlas and axis. The calvarium is removed, so there's a transparency here that we see. And this is a valuable specimen. Uh, it says, read, the, and I remember reading this uh, in the library. It says, read the description when you see this in the library. It says, read the description first before studying the specimen. Study specimen, then read the description again. Study A to P as well as P to A. Laterals also reveal much. The small base on which rest the glass jar revolves on a larger base below. It turns hard purposely. After studying one direction, then revolve it slowly to another direction until you have seen all four sides. But always remember to change position slowly. Now, I'm not sure, but I remember that uh, BJ uh, bought a head from Germany. I think this may be the one. There was a, um, a convict convicted uh, and uh, sentenced to die, and they were going to decapitate the, the convict, and BJ said, I'll buy the head. <laughs> and I think this may be the specimen, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember that story. Because he, what he did, he bought the specimen and they froze it right away because he wanted to see the subluxation as it exists right after death. Next is a, a coffin mummy and a full-body x-ray of an Egyptian princess. He took uh, the full spine A to P view. Well, he took the, the, the whole body A to P view. And then he took uh, an A to P cervical and a lateral cervical as we see on the top. And yeah, BJ had a rehabilitation laboratory. No way. And that's it. Uh, the the, uh, the laboratory is there and uh, bicycles and uh, other things that we'll see real soon uh, to help rehabilitate uh, neck muscles, to rehabilitate uh, lung capacity, people that couldn't walk. You talk about somebody who was ahead of his time. I can't believe BJ used modalities. Well, he didn't use them. And you know, my father said the same thing. He said, he hired people to do this. <laughs> he, hired the, he hired the MDs to do their, their analysis. No treatment. Uh, just to do their medical diagnosis and their testing. 
And then he, he obviously hired some therapist to help uh, rehabilitate um, where they needed it. You know, if BJ was alive today, there would be a, lot, a few changes, I feel. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't only be um, specific upper cervical adjustment, but that's what the chiropractor would do. Right. The, the chiropractor wouldn't be doing the, the modalities and the physical therapy and everything else. The, the chiropractor does what he's trained to do, and that's to adjust upper cervical spine. <laughs> um, we have precision weight scale here. This is um, in the rehabilitation laboratory with the uh, the walking bars, and you can see the the imprints of the feet. That's for walking rehabilitation. He had bicycles. You can see the bicycle in the next one, the rehabilitation laboratory. Had rowing. See the rowing instruments there, the parallel bars, the punching bag. Rehab lab also showed neck neck muscle developer and a forearm developer. <laughs> Next we see a rehab lab with a treadmill and push pull leg developer. See a mechanical horse, and uh, this mechanical horse this is the only apparatus that has its own power supply. Huh. Uh, See here the kitty cars to retrain paralyzed to walk and an upper arm developer. Shoulder and back developer. He really had a lot going on. Yeah. And this spirometer, the lung developer, arm developer. Climbing bars next. Ambulance cots, crutches, canes, wheelchairs. Palm court. That was, I believe, that palm court is the old West Wing at Palmer College of Chiropractic. When it was a wing of the campus, we called West Wing. This is the floor. I mean, the artwork that BJ brought to the school was unbelievable. I mean, they did take a lot of that away after he passed away. Uh, I didn't see this when I was there, with the fishes and the man and the lobster crabs and the. This is interesting. He had a 2,000-gallon fish aquarium, which is 47 feet long. After the adjustment, the patients used to sit in the chairs and just relax and watch fish swim. He he wanted them to um, to relax and. Um, so the adjustment could set even more. He had a mounted uh, fish collection. He had a uh, Eskimo artifacts. Now this is a clinic assembly hall, a sword and blade collection. This is very famous. I got to see this in the basement. My roommate brought me down there when he was janitor and. Um, my father has pictures. I have a picture of my dad behind these these knives and a sword collection. These were collected by B.J. when he went traveled throughout the world, and um, 
he was very interested in the history of swords because the sword was a weapon man developed from the beginning of time. And uh, this is worth so much money now. Hmm. It's unbelievable. Now, this one is very interesting. I have a picture, this a collection of beheading axes. Uh, <laughs> the, this was in the, in the assembly hall. And my dad is sitting at this desk with the American flag to the right and the Palmer flag to the left. And the beheading axes are crossed each other. Now, if you look straight down the middle of the X of those axes, uh, there's a sword with spikes on it, and it, there it's a five-pronged sword. And my dad told me that sword there in the middle, going up, mm-hmm. was a sword that uh, the soldier would use and stab the enemy. And when you pulled it out, it would talk. So the talking would try to rip out any organs that it can rip out. I think that's that right because it, it had a torque. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is the clinic assembly hall. The, uh, the staff and the doctors would meet there once a week to discuss cases. And uh, they were congregating. Uh, my dad said it would be sometimes a couple of hours there, or, or maybe one hour. And it was, uh, you know, BJ when when he would be speaking there, uh, he say he would say three o'clock, and if you were there at three o one, you couldn't get through the door hmm. because when he spoke, you had to be there, and, and there was no ands, ifs, or buts. Now, this. Uh, Next picture here is the electroencephaloneuromentipograph. Uh, BJ developed this, and it's my understanding that this is the precursor to the EMG. The one instrument that's most important around here is the one that you know perhaps the least about, and that's the electroencephaloneuromentipograph. That's an instrument that measures calibrates and devaluates the quantity flow of mental impulse or nerve force that's made in the brain that flows through the nerves that is or is not in action in the body. Measures it the same exactly as an electrician would stick a meter on the wire and he could tell you whether there was any electricity going to that globe at all or not. And if there was, he could tell you how much whether it's a normal quantity or an abnormal quantity, whether it was below normal or above normal. A thing that he could tell by the meter. Uh, The next slide shows it shielded and grounded boots. We see a side posture table there too. I was looking at this uh, recently, and I saw the side posture table, and then I saw the uh, the table where he would do his tests with this instrument, and it it would test what he said was the mental impulses along a nerve, going by the spine, along the spine. I would have to assume that he would adjust the patient upper cervically, and then test them 
with this instrument pre-post testing or why else would he have this this table there right that's my that's my that's my guess <coughs> and this is the uh, the recording apparatus of the electroencephaloneuromantipograph now this picture here shows the electrodes detect five points of nerve energy simultaneously now I don't know exactly if these prongs went through the skin or not. They look like they did. Yeah. Now uh, the next slide shows that it looks like a needle is going through. Mm -hmm. The patient's prone, head turned to the left. Interesting why, you know, why BJ chose this picture here, now because we only he only adjusted up the cervically, but he wanted to see it, probably how it affected the rest of the spine. Mm. After adjusting up the cervically, was it affecting the rest of the spine? And that, today we know it does. This is a, a kilopolygraph lie detector. BJ wanted to make sure that the patients were not taking any medications when he went when they went to his clinic. They had to stop all medic, and so I guess he wanted to really find out if they were lying. Oh wow! I remember in in uh, one of the lectures he gave um, to the patients in the BJ Palmer private clinic, one of the sisters, a nun was there and he said uh, now uh, I told you that you're not supposed to take any medication and, I, and she says I'm not taking any medication Dr. Palm I'm not on any medication yes you are we know you're, you're on medication still <laughs> this is a polygraph lie detector here next slide This is a entrance to the clinic gardens, a little bit of heaven. Uh, when I was there, it was, it was well kept still. And uh, it was a nice place to go and relax and walk around and see the koi fish in, in the gardens. And uh, the very um, Eastern philosophy gardens with the Buddhas all over the place and the statues, et cetera. These are more, more clinic gardens and fountains and ponds. The clinic gardens were like a relaxation area. This is just a chair in the garden under a canopy. That's a picture of a stone carp in the garden. This is a, in the clinic garden, the sundial and some, some animals. PJ had a lot of Buddhas. That's a picture of a Buddha here. And a Chinese maiden. More sculptures. This last one is a picture here of a Clearview Sanitarium. It was a chiropractic mental hospital in Davenport, Iowa. Um, my dad told me a story one time that uh, 
during the war, BJ lectured one time, and he says, if I could adjust Hitler's atlas, I can change the course of history. Wow. And um, they wanted to see if the upper cervical adjustment can change the mental attitude of uh, people in a mental hospital. Interesting, too, uh, when my father was a a senior at uh, chiropractic college, they started a uh, polio clinic, and he became vice president of a polio clinic, and they got to see uh, kids with polio, and they would take care of them uh, upper cervically only, obviously, and uh, a lot of them did get some recovery. And uh, not too many people know that they had a polio clinic as well as the Clearview Sanitarium. My dad did say, though, the Clearview Sanitarium was affiliated with the college, Hmm. Uh, but uh, the, the polio clinic was not. Dear BJ, heard from a clinic patient that you were looking well, was happy to hear. Last problem I had was my mother going downhill fast with shingles. Your analysis of proper lifting of course turned the tide. Mother was fine. Now thanks to you and Nene. Ah, the boy's got the big idea. I had always heard at school about BJ talking about the big idea. So what is the big idea? get the big idea and all else will follow. Well, I want to read from a paper that uh, BJ wrote about the big idea. This is the third paragraph in the paper. Man is a small thing, world's considered. An axis vertebra is small, man considered. The odontoid process on an axis is small. An atlas is small, man considered. The neural canal in an atlas is also small. Yet that axis odontoid process, small as it is, crowding in upon the atlas or neural canal, small as it is, acts as a governor to the destiny of man's thoughts and functions. For it, in normal position, permits a free flow, or in subluxation interferes with the free flow of all that force with which man thinks and acts. Man lives when he can think and act. Man dies when he ceases to create thought and perform motion. Man becomes sick when thought and function are below par. Therefore, the intermagnum atlas foramen, or the odontoid process, may be a small thing, but it is the biggest thing in man. Well, I just uh, hope um, more chiropractors uh, understand the the great gift that uh, B.J. gave us. Um, He gave us philosophy, which... Many chiropractors who don't practice upper cervical specific use, and uh, I just wish they would take another step hmm. into the science and art of upper cervical chiropractic, where they would be able to find if they utilized, they learned and utilized a specific upper cervical procedure, they would be able to help more of the the cases that they're they're not getting or not accomplishing the what they want to accomplish with those cases. And um, 
when I look at this history here, I see one adjustment in 28 days, and they got phenomenal results. Hmm. So uh, I think that's another lesson to be learned. I feel that if if more chiropractors, whether you were a graduate of Palmer National or anybody at any other school, if you would look at our history with a little bit more open mind, that uh, it can open a lot more doors for you and for the world. This has been Upper Cervical Interviews. I'm Dr. Paul Hambrick. For more interviews like this, please go to UpperCervicalDocs.com, where you can also hear Testimonial Tuesday with Dr. Drew Hall. It's a podcast about uh, lives that have been changed through upper cervical corrections. Special thanks to Dr. Gary Golombiewski for putting together this presentation and sharing it with us. If you'd like to see the slide presentation that he put together, you can see that at UpperCervicalDocs.com. Please subscribe to the podcast, this one and Testimonial Tuesday. Write reviews, tell your friends. The more people that know about this podcast, the more that people know about Upper Cervical. Again, I'm Dr. Paul Hambrick. We'll see you next time. I'm not brutal. I'm just wanting to be a shark on the things that I know work. You see the point? But the staff members are here for that purpose. Talk to them. They, they listen to you. That's what they're paid for. <laughs> I'm not. I've, I've had so much of that through the thousands of cases over the years that to me it's, it's goat feathers, it's horse feathers. I don't want it. What's more, I don't have to listen to it. But I, I mention that uh, I don't want to be arbitrary. But we're here now to get you well. Now you help us. Don't be in a hurry about going home, going home if you don't have to. We won't tell you when you can go. We won't tell you when you shouldn't go. We may suggest that it might be advisable to stay longer. But we'll put no pressure on you, no heat on you, to stay at all. That's one thing we won't do around here, is to burden you with an obligation in any way. Anytime you feel you must go, you go with our blessings with the hopes that you continue to get well. Thank you very much. Thank you.